I'm excited you're here. And we're going to begin this week something very different. We'll take a break from what we've been doing. And I want to invite you, if you will, to turn in a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you don't own a Bible or you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible on, you know, like on some sort of electronic wireless device, would you just raise your hand? Um, and my friend Mark is actually going to come and pass one out to you. So if you don't have a Bible, um, please, please uh, ask Mr. Mark here and he'll, um, he'll come to you if you wave, wave your hand at him. Um, in addition to that, if you don't own a Bible, like if you don't possess one, if you don't have one for, your, uh, for yourself, please take that with you. Let that be our gift to you. Um, and I'll even kind of add to that. If you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, please take that and give that to them. Uh, we really believe that God's Word is, is a tool, it's an inspiration, and it's a guide for us. And it, 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 the meaning and answers to all of most, life's most important questions are found there. It's our guide and directive, and so we don't want to hide that from someone that's not something I stand up here and I'm an expert in and share with you. It's something that we as a group of people walk in together. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, the table of contents at the beginning will be able to, to kind of uh, get you where you need to go, but we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll give you kind of a preview uh, of where we have been maybe um, uh, to wrap up and then, and then maybe to chart a course for what we're doing today. So up to this point, state the obvious, we're like, we're a baby church, right? We're just like a baby, baby church, like a baby out of the womb. We've only been meeting for a few months now, um, and so it's exciting to even meet you, that you're here. This is cool. God is, God is doing some really cool stuff, um, and we're crazy, so we think you're not here by accident. So I'm excited to, every, every chance I get to see some of you face-to-face. We're this baby church meeting in an elementary school. Um, God has got this awesome future for us, and we'll see where God takes us. And so for the last several weeks since we began meeting together here, we've been walking through the book of Acts, literally the actions of the apostles. Because if, if the DNA uh, that seems to play out in the most powerful and meaningful ways in the first life of a child is really key, and, and the nutrition and, and the, the kinds of practices that are set into to motion in the first year of the life of a child are really that important, then how much more important is... are are the things that we believe and begin to learn and teach and walk with together in our first days together as a baby church. And so we've been walking through the book of Acts, which is the actions of the apostles. It's, It's literally the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is in action. We've tried to dig into it and walk through it so that everything we do and everything we believe and everything we practice and our own actions are based solely on what God began as a movement when he sent Jesus Christ to accomplish something amazing on our behalf. So that if we're going to lay a foundation, it's going to be Jesus. If we're going to have a pattern of behaviors and beliefs as a group of people, then we want those to be very unoriginal. We want those to be the first beliefs that the first followers of Jesus had. We don't, we don't want to be creative and innovative in what we believe or what we do. Instead, we want to be radically loyal to the good news of Jesus, radically unoriginal as we begin to live it out. And so we've kind of taken a break call it halftime, we're 15 chapters in, and I want to maybe step aside and, and, and show you, hopefully, over the next several weeks, our core values as a church, where they come from in the Bible, why we believe them, and hopefully begin to put into practice the things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And we can see that if what we believe really lines up with these first Christians, these first believers, and we can measure if, if that's a core value, if it's what we really value, if it's what we really believe, if that's a mark, if that's part of our DNA, something that will never change throughout the life of this church, then this will be the time where we get to expose it, talk about it, and really measure it against God's Word. So here we are, I would say the first, 
<clears throat> and you'll have to forgive me. I'm fighting off something up here. So if I just break into a coughing fit, we'll just pray and uh, we'll take the Lord's Supper and that'll be the end of it. Um, don't start praying for that, okay? Don't. I know some of you don't. That's not cool. Um, but uh, if I start coughing at you, please show me mercy. I, I have no idea. Some, some weeds are, are fighting against my allergies for the last couple of weeks. And Let it snow, please. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our core value, right? One of, the, one of our core values here is the gospel. Literally just the good news. The good news. The gospel is the Bible word. It's a, it's a churchy word. It simply means the good news. And in fact, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are known as the gospels. That is, they're the good news of who Jesus was. And, and those four different accounts are from four different perspectives People that knew or, or walked with Jesus and they simply retold the story of who Jesus was and, and what He accomplished while He was here on earth. Why He came and what He taught and what it looked like as He was walking amongst people, living with them, teaching them, leading them and guiding them. And that whole story, that, that summary of who Jesus is and what He's done for you and for me is known as the Gospel. It's the good news. And that's a word that it, it's kind of churchy, it's found in the Bible, but I, I want to give you a, a brief little synopsis of where it's come from, why we think it's important, and what it means. I want to walk maybe through uh, places in Scripture where we find it. It's found 90 times in the New Testament um, in different forms. It's very important. It's a, it's a key feature of what Christians believe. But at the same time, it's also something that's either assumed that everyone understands and so therefore misplaced or forgotten, or it's not even valued at all because we don't see its theme play out in Scripture. And so we want to begin to remedy that and work against that. And the first Christians knew this word gospel because it was used by the Roman government that ruled where they lived. And so the Roman government, the Caesar was in charge, and they had these words that they used to describe Caesar, and they had words to describe the victory of the Roman Empire. And so Caesar comes along and says to the Roman Empire, we're going to take over the world because we are chosen by God. And in fact, Caesar was worshipped and he was known as Soter, which means Savior. And if, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, there's a little scene there where this little boy is playing like the gladiator and he, and he says to Caesar, even though he's a, playing like he's a slave um, who is fighting as a gladiator in, in the middle of the crowds, he says, I'm Maximus, the Savior of Rome. And Caesar's standing there and he's really offended by that. Because that's a word that's especially set aside for Caesar, the king, who God has ordained as king and God has sent as the Savior of his people. But in addition to that, as the emperor, as he led the entire Roman Empire to take over different places and spread the influence of, of Rome throughout the known world at that particular time, as they would come into a place with their army and they would take over all of the government, they would vanquish an army and then take over and begin to rule that place and then kind of intermesh their own culture with the culture that existed there and they would create a new culture that was Roman. They would say something else. As they were victorious, the people would come back and they would share with the people in Rome what they called the gospel, the good news of victory. And so this is a word for these first Christians that had strong and powerful political meaning. That Caesar was Savior and that he was taking over the world and taking the world under his control was good news. 
And so even if you were an enemy of Caesar, if you were living in some outlying area, maybe as far as Europe, as you see Caesar and his kingdom come rolling through with catapults, armies, advanced war technology, and they took over and destroyed you and destroyed families and split them apart, killed many on their way, they would say, good news, you're now a Roman. And Caesar is now here with his army and his power to save you. Well, along comes this guy named Jesus. And he does something. Something that's changed everything. We share this on a regular basis. One of the most shallow ways we can see this is that you know it's 2014. 2014 years since what? It's 2014 years since Jesus, this guy, something happened. He did something and it changed everything. And in the same way that powerful events change the way you tell time, hence why we say this like um, people who've just had babies, they use units like our baby's 17 months old, right? No one says that. You're, you're, a year, you're a year and five months, okay? It's not 17 months. But something crazy happens when you have a baby, you start, you start telling time differently, right? They're 20 months apart. Our babies are 20 months apart. What, what do you... No one used those units. No one talks that way. When you've had a baby, your life has changed. And you count time differently. And so every time you see your iPhone and it tells you it's 2014, it's a reminder, God did something. And now we tell time differently. Something has changed. Jesus has accomplished something and it changed everything. And no matter what you believe about who Jesus is and what it is that he's done, you have to at least admit that he's done something that's changed everything. And because of this amazing thing that Jesus did, and because of the movement that it began, his people, his followers, began to realize that there was something greater about this Jesus than just his teachings and just his power to perform miracles. There was something greater. In fact, he was a messenger from God to accomplish for you and for me something that we could not do on our own. And as much as we would like to clean up our act and not fail and and not rebel against God and not do anything wrong for the rest of our lives, we know that's impossible. And God seeing that, knowing that about us, in His mercy sent Jesus to take our place, to bear the punishment for your wrongdoings. And since He walked this earth, since He died an innocent man, public, shameful, betrayed by His friends on an old rugged cross, and since He was buried and He came alive, something happened that's changed everything. And his followers, knowing this amazing thing that Jesus did, began to refer to what Jesus did as the good news. And knowing that Jesus had come to deliver them from their own broken hearts, their own broken lives, they referred to this Jesus as Savior. Now we often want to think that to be a Christian is not a political thing. It's, in fact, you're really strong. Politics and Jesus stay separate. Keep them separate. But, but just make no mistake about it. The very first Christians knew nothing of this. Because to say that Jesus is Savior and Lord was to say to Caesar the king that you are not. To say that what Jesus had done is good news was to say that who the emperor was and what the Roman Empire had done was not. And this good news that has changed the world is the good news that you and I are transformed by. It's what we sing about. It's what we share. So I want to show you why we do that, where that comes from, and I want to do so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
put to the test the Acts of the Apostles and see if we really are doing this. We'll read just the first 11 verses. So here's this man named Paul speaking to a church, a young church, probably a little bit older than our church here, but young nonetheless, and he wants them to have powerful and strong DNA that will last the test of time. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, that is brothers and sisters, my brothers of the gospel, the good news that I preach to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so for those of us who are trying to learn how to articulate the gospel to the people around us and trying to think of clear and powerful and pertinent and relevant metaphors to explain who Jesus is, he gives us a cheat sheet right here. I delivered this to you as first importance of what I also had received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born he appeared also to me that is paul for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i was because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary as a result i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but instead it was the grace of god that was in me whether then it was i or they so we preach and so now you have believed so there's this concept that paul refers to that has many different facets it seems to be as he says in verse three of first importance there's this thing that Paul has been teaching as he began to start churches in these areas, this, as, as the good news of who Jesus was began to spread outside of Jerusalem, and it began to go to the areas and surrounding states and provinces, and then even then as Jesus commanded to go to the ends of the earth, even to the point where we're here on another continent and a whole other time and place still talking about it. And as it spread, apparently Paul wanted him, excuse me, wanted the people and wanted us to know that there was a message, there was a word, there was a thought, an idea that was of first importance. That as we talked about Jesus and who he was, there was an idea that is of first importance. And he explains it in brief this way. That this Jesus, this Christ, he died. But it's not just that he died. His, his death had purpose. Now, we kind of understand this, Maybe in a cursory, in a nominal fashion. We, we know this, right? We, we know this. Every once in a while, in the most shallow sense, in Sioux Falls, there's an odor, an aroma, if you will, <laughs> wafting about. Right? And it comes from our friends over at John Morell. <laughs> right? And it's, ah, it's, ah. 
And there's a sense in which, in, in the most shallow and perverse sense even, it's the smell of death. Sometimes it's not well hidden, right? It's, that's, that smells like something dead, right? That's definitely something dead. And yet there's a sense in which those dead things have not died in vain. They weren't killed because they were in the way. They were killed so that, and we could argue about how this plays itself out, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, that smell turns into something that eventually ends up in a grocery store. And these animals, these creatures that once had life are no longer alive, but they didn't die because they smelled bad. They died so that other people could eat. So even in the simplest cursory sense, we realize that those animals died for a purpose. They weren't just killed because they were in the way. They were killed with an end in sight. We sense this sometimes in a deeper sense, especially in our culture, when, when we think about, for instance, this is, this is I hope, applicable because we're, we're um, staring at about 13 years since something happened this month, 9-11 of 2001, and we, we commemorate some interesting things that take place, especially with respect to some guys known as firemen and, and police officers, and we commemorate them in a, in a weird way. They died. They were in these towers when the towers came tumbling down and and many people died, but there's kind of this thing. They died and they didn't die in vain. We have this sense about us that they died with a purpose. That they died for something bigger, something greater than themselves. That as those men were rushing up the towers that were doomed to fall on them, they weren't going to get a better view of the crash site. They were going in to help people. And as they died, we sense, at least in a shallow sense, that they died with a purpose. We celebrate several different times a year that there's men and women wearing a uniform and a flag. And it's our flag. And in some way, they're, they're fighting. And they have, as we commemorate several times a year, died for something. Jesus, this, this man, it, I mean... The historians, the historians will all agree there was this guy named Jesus. He walked the earth, and they'll all agree he, he died. He's not alive as he walked. He died. But it wasn't just a death because he was in the way. He died with a purpose. And in the deepest, least perverse, most profound and life-altering sense, this Jesus died, it says for something for it says our sins and so sin is a weird word it's a it's a churchy word that i doubt we we use on a regular basis but it simply means sins sin is to miss the mark sin is to as god has set the standard of who he's created you and me to be sin is to miss that mark and to to be beneath that standard and to to rebel against what god wants and and there's a sense in which we're all aware of this and, and there's another sense in which we're always becoming more and more aware of it. So you can, in the most shallow sense, kind of walk through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. The law that God has given to His people. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet and envy something that you do not possess. Thou shalt not murder. And you can go down the list, and if you can make your way all the way to the end of the list, and you're still in good shape, you're still perfect, then this doesn't apply to you. But if you've ever lied, if you've ever stolen, 
you've ever betrayed, well, then what you've done is you've broken the law of God. You've failed to meet God's standard. And here is incredibly good news. This Jesus who died, died for you and for your lawlessness. This Jesus, he died with a purpose. And Paul wants us to know that even though we we might be aware of the fact that Jesus died, we want to know that Christ died and he died for our sins. Then it says that he died in accordance with the Scriptures. That is that there is prophecy. There are people throughout the Old Testament that God has sent as messengers, as heralds of good news that, look, there is a Redeemer that's coming. There's one that's going to save us from the things we could not save ourselves from. And that one that came is Jesus. And that Christ, He died not as an accident, not as God's plan B, but He died according to God's plan in accordance with the Scripture. God wasn't looking down on you and me and like, oh no, they sinned. What do I do? I better come up with a new plan. And Paul wants you to know the good news that God knew you were going to fail. God knew you weren't going to meet the mark. God knew that you weren't going to meet and live up to the standard. And He loved you and cared for you so much that He had a plan to fix and redeem it all along. There was grace already being prepared. There was grace already being set aside. And so He died for our sins according to the plan in accordance with Scriptures. That He was buried. He was thrown into a borrowed tomb. But then He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I won't won't go too deeply into this, but this is a pretty cool thing that this religious group of people used to always get together on Saturdays as we've talked for the last few weeks. All of a sudden, something happened on a Sunday to where this religious group of people was like, hey guys, let's stop and let's start meeting on Sunday. Because religious people love change, right? They love change. They don't worship their tradition or anything. And all of a sudden, God came and did something to where this religious group of people who held the Sabbath to be holy and they worshiped and celebrated God's goodness on Saturday, all of a sudden, changed to Sunday. And that thing that happened was that Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. Jesus didn't stay dead. He walked out of there. And then it says that He appeared to many. And so the last part of this good news is that this good news is subjective It's not only an objective truth that's happened and occurred for our sake, but it apparently, it it is subjective. It it requires a response. It actually impacts us. It makes a difference. And so when when Jesus came out, he, He appeared to at least, it says, 500 subjects. He appeared and revealed Himself to many people. He revealed Himself, showed Himself to the apostles. And then He was taken up into heaven. So this good news isn't just something that's up there and out there, but it's news that is for us and even about us. It's even declared on our behalf. I've heard it put it this way one time, uh, that the gospel, this good news, is more akin to propaganda. One pastor put it this way, they in the end, we, we tell our readers or our hearers that Jesus was something special. And then we expect them, as these people in 1 Corinthians 15, to respond accordingly. There is no neutral stance that is possible in relation to this good news of Jesus. Because depending on your response, the message will either turn out to be good news for you or bad. You see, this Jesus had power over death. This Jesus is King. This Jesus is Lord. This Jesus has the authority to command. This Jesus has the position to judge. And this Jesus has the position to give mercy. 
And for those who call upon his name, we receive that mercy. And for those who rebel against him, then he will show his glory over your life and mine for eternity by either displaying his perfect patience and mercy or displaying his justice and his wrath. This is the good news. that This Jesus did something and it was for you. And so as we walk through this text, I want to just skim over it and look at the ways in which we begin to apply it. If this good news really is that important, then what do we do with it? Well, let's start. It says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news. It's a concept that he summarized and we just walked through, right? It's, it's a concept. It's an idea. It's a, it's a thing to know. It's an idea to be grasped. It's a story, a narrative to be understood. A story even that plays out over and over and over again. If you read through the Bible, you begin to see that what Jesus has done and the forgiveness that God gives us in Jesus is not a new idea. In fact, it's the climax of the first idea God began to share with us. So a quick recap. You want to read the Old Testament? It starts with this guy and this girl, this guy named Adam and this girl named Eve, right? And God gives them the perfect circumstance. And in case you ever find yourself thinking, well, if I had perfect circumstances, I would do better. Well, these people are here to teach us the opposite, right? So here's this guy, here's this girl. They're given the perfect world, perfect life, perfect food, everything's great, no MSG, all good, right? And even in this perfect, this perfect environment, they rebelled against the perfect creator and the perfect author of their circumstances. And it was in their nature to run away from this God. Now, here's where the good news starts and becomes repetitive. This is where, if I were God, the story ends. Right? I guess, you know, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. And this is where, if I was God, I made a perfect place, gave these perfect gifts for these two people, everything's perfect. What? You don't like that? You want something else? Ha <laughs> ha. That's the end of the story. And yet that isn't the end of the story. Instead, the story plays on. That God, instead of wiping them off the face of the planet, gives them another chance. Gives them a chance. Gives them mercy and grace and and gives them another opportunity. And with that opportunity, they begin to multiply. And guess what they do? They mess that one up again. And instead of wiping them all off the face of the planet, he saves a few of them and he gives them another chance. And what do they do with that chance? They mess that one up. And on and on and on the story goes, and on and on and on the good news of God's grace for us shows up at the end of every story. It's an idea, a concept. It's something to be grasped. But it also, it says that this idea that I want to remind you of, this gospel, I preach to you. So it's a thing not only to know, but it's a thing to be preached It's a story to be shared. It's a story that if it's true, it's too good to keep a secret. If what Jesus has done ultimately is greater than anything that's ever happened, then that's the thing that ought to be falling out of our mouths and on the tip of our tongues. Look, I'm not saying that your grandkids aren't adorable, right? I'm not saying that your puppy isn't adorable. I'm not saying your workout yesterday wasn't awesome. We'll talk about those things. None of those things are as great as this thing that Jesus has done for us. And that's why Paul delivered it as a matter of first importance. And that means that if you get the opportunity to tell somebody about the great things going on in your life, that's great. But if you miss the opportunity to share with them this amazing thing that God has done in all of history, then you've missed out on a key component to this good news. 
that it's not just a thing to be known and hoarded, it's a thing to be understood and shared. It's a thing to be proclaimed, a thing to be preached. It's also a thing to be received. It says, which you receive. That is, it's a thing to be received or believed. You can hear this thing about who Jesus is, and you've got really an option. You can kind of receive it as the greatest story ever told. You can kind of receive it as as the narrative that overrides all other stories, or you can think it's a fairy tale. You're free to choose. You're free to receive it however you please. But one thing you can't do is ignore it. You can't ignore it. It's a thing to be believed. It's a thing to be received. And if it is to be believed, then it's to be received as a gift. In addition to that, it it says that it's a thing in which you now stand. It's a thing to stand on. This is important because for most people, you talk about faith. Faith is a story that's entirely past tense, right? Ask a million people in this this city, are you a Christian? And they'll go, yes. And you'll go like, well, tell me about that. And then they'll point to something utterly past tense. Right? I've been guilty of this. Faith is something that happened. Oh, I did this thing back in the day, right? They refer to something that was a long time ago. Are you a Christian? Well, yes, I got baptized when I was a baby. Well, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you following him now? Well, no, but remember what I told you? I, I did that thing, right? That thing. Are you, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I went to church camp when I was 12, man. It was great. It felt really cool. Kumbaya, you know what I'm saying? And you go, like, well, is, is Jesus Lord of your life? And I go, well, didn't I tell you I went to the church camp thing? Well, that was 20 years ago, bro. This is a common temptation. And what I would throw out in this particular context that if this thing is something in which we presently stand and presently walk, then that means that the faith that we have been given by Jesus and received as a gift is not something that's past tense. In fact, the differentiation I would lay out for you is like this. Warm fuzzies about the past are what's known as nostalgia. Warm fuzzies about the future, that's known as faith. And what Jesus has done for us is not just to give us warm fuzzies about a time in our life where we felt really cool. Ultimately, the greatest gift that God has given us is the future that we get to spend for eternity with him. And our faith, the warm fuzzies, the hope, the joy that we have overflowing in us isn't about something that happened back in the day. It's about the thing that Jesus will be doing in our midst and among us and for us forever and ever. That we will never be abandoned by God. This good news is something in which we now live, in which we now stand. It says, by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. I seem obligated to share here that if this good news of Jesus is what saves us, then what are we without it? If this this good news that Jesus has done something on our behalf, something to be received and believed and something that gives us more joy than we can possibly know, if, if those are the gifts that God gives us that save us, save us from our own failure, that deliver us from our own bondage. If those are the things that save us, then the question remains, what about if it's missing? This good news saves us. This good news gives us a gift, salvation. It gives us something that lasts for eternity. It's a gift that sets us free from all the other gifts. It's the gift, since it was given by God, 
can't be taken away by anyone else. It's the gift that, as it's given by our Creator, can't be taken away or undermined by created things. It's a gift that's so good that it saves us forever. It's a thing to be held fast to. It says that if you would hold fast to this thing, this word that I preach to you, hear, you, hear it again, it's good news, it's something to be shared, it's thing, something to be preached. And then I love Paul because he's as sarcastic as I am, I guess. Or at least it makes me feel better. He throws in at the end of verse 2, unless you believed in vain. Right? This good news, it changes you. It's, it's a thing that, that lasts forever. It saves you. It gives you new life. It's a thing to be received, to be grasped, to be held onto, to walk in. And then he throws in that, well, unless, of course, it's all in vain. Knowing, of course, that that's not. He says, I delivered it to you ultimately as of first importance. That Christ did something. It's changed everything. So let me wrap up here and we'll engage in an active participation in the symbol of this good news, something uh, that we do on a regular basis. When we talk about who Jesus is, I want to give you maybe some language to, to help you put into categories what we believe and what we know about Jesus. And here's what you'll hear me say on a regular basis. There's a difference between good news and good advice. And this thing that Jesus has done is good news, not good advice. There's a difference. So when we get together as small groups, we hang out together, ultimately the thing that's going to change us and transform us and give us lasting value is the good news of Jesus, the thing that the world didn't give us so the world can't take it away. It's the thing that Jesus has done for all times. But then there's kind of good advice, which is in our nature to dispense, right? Share a problem with a crowd of people. See what happens, right? Everyone's a self-appointed expert. And it may be helpful until it's not. And so even as I stand up here, I want to share with you not good advice, not, hey, here's five steps for you to have a better week, right? Which would be cool for a week, assuming it was any good. What happens after that? The good advice expires. The good advice wears off. The good advice is undermined by the circumstances that seem stronger than it. But here's what I want you to hear. Not the good advice of what will get you through the week. I want to give you the good news that will get you through eternity. I don't want to give you some good advice that will maybe make you happier for the next couple of days if you follow it. I want to give you the good news of Jesus that will give you eternal joy forever and ever. And when we receive it, we understand it, it transforms our lives. Then the steps we take next are marked by joy. And the things like good advice, well, they start to fall in place because we start walking in Jesus' footsteps. I don't want to give you five steps to be a better person. Here's why. There's only one perfect person, and that guy's name was Jesus. And I would rather tell you about him so that you would be transformed by his teachings. You'd be transformed by what he's done for you so that as you walk in his footsteps, you're walking toward being a better person. Not because you have it within yourself, but because we're walking to the one that does. He ultimately is our goal. He ultimately is our model. And what he's done for us lasts longer than anything else. The place where we see that play out, the good news versus good advice, is this. Good advice doesn't apply to everyone, does it? Right? Good, sound financial you know, retirement advice doesn't apply to people who are homeless. True? 
right? Good, sound advice does not apply across context. Good news does. So if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you would say, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus. That's cool. You're welcome here. We love you. We're glad you're here. Guess what? I don't have any good advice for you. What I have for you is good news. As that Jesus wants you to walk in his footsteps and Jesus wants you to know greater joy by following him than you've ever known before. And you're hesitant. Maybe, oh, that sounds kind of crazy. I know it is. It's crazy. It's crazy. And that's what makes it so amazing. So if you find yourself on the outside, I don't, I don't know if I believe that yet. You're welcome here because I have good news for you. Jesus wants you here. Jesus wants you to know the hope. Jesus wants you to know the love. Jesus wants you to know the grace that he wants to show to you. But let's say you would call yourself a follower of Jesus. I don't have any good advice that would translate to both, but you know what I have for you too? Good news. Good news. Even though you would call yourself a believer, you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, you know that thing you did last week that dishonored him? You know that rebellion this last week that when you sinned against our God and Father? I have good news. I have good news. Jesus wants to put that right as well. Jesus wants to give you renewal each day that you hear, receive, and stand in and hold fast to this amazing thing that he's done for you and for me. This good news translates to every single environment. If you're a religious person, I have good news. Your religion doesn't save you. Good news, Jesus has. You're not a religious person, I have good news. This Jesus saves you, not your lack of religion. If you find yourself to be, man, you got it figured out. Like you, your finances, your life, your family, it's all in order. I have good news. That does not impress God. God's love is impressed upon us by Jesus on the cross. But if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe you come from a pretty messed up family tree. I got a pretty weird, some weird branches in my family tree. If you're like that, maybe you've made some decisions that have gotten you in trouble, right? Maybe, maybe you've failed to do that. Maybe your life is not in order. Maybe your finances are not in order. Maybe, maybe your family is not in order. Maybe your life is marked by more stress than happiness. I have good news for you too. Jesus has done something for you bigger and greater than all of those things. It's good news. It's free It's so good we can't keep it a secret. It's so good that we keep talking about it. It's so powerful and so perfect, all we have to do is deliver it. So there's two ways in which we think that plays out um, in a most prominent fashion that we do as a group. The first one we did last week, it's called baptism. Right? The Bible tells us that in baptism, we get a picture of the good news. The good news that, as we just said, right, Jesus, he died, he was buried. And then he came out of the tomb. He's not dead anymore. And he appeared to many people. Well, we in baptism participate in that same thing. We, we lay back underwater. We're not just playing dead. We're actually facing death. If, if the pastor wants to, he can hold you under the water, and it's no longer baptism. It's murder. Right? But no one's afraid of that. No one's afraid. I mean, you are now that I said it. But we face death. When you're under the water, you're facing death. You can't live under there. You're facing death. But here's the cool thing. You're not afraid of dying in baptism, are you? That's the good news. In the, same that, in the same way that we have no fear of dying in the water, we also have no fear of staying in the grave because our Jesus, our Savior, he didn't. And in the same way we have no fear of drowning in the water, we have no fear of the grave because one day Jesus will pull us out. It's a symbol. 
But there's also another symbol we take part in as a group. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. You may call it the Eucharist. There's lots of different names of it. But what we're saying is that this Jesus, he died. He died. Not because he was in the way, but because he died for a purpose. He died for our sins, for your brokenness and for mine. And he allowed his body to be broken. He allowed it to be beaten, to be whipped, to be pierced with nails. And he allowed himself to be betrayed and hung naked on a cross for you. So that if you ever wondered if God is real and God loves you, you would always have the answer as you look at the cross and say, I know God loves me because our God would rather die on a cross than to leave me out to dry. And as his blood poured out, we celebrate in the Lord's Supper that his body was broken and we eat bread. We celebrate that his blood poured out, that he bled, he died. The life left him. Not for nothing, but for you and for me. And so in a minute here, we're going to, um, I'm going to pray over us, uh, and we're going to go back into a time of worship together. And as we do it, um, I, I want to just kind of give you uh, some ground rules. Um, if, if you want to, you want to celebrate in this symbol, if this is something, if you call yourself a, a believer, a follower of Jesus, this is for you. Um, this body and this blood was shed for you. If, you. if you're not a believer, that's okay. You don't have to do this. We're going to sing again. We're going to worship Jesus, and we want you to participate. But this is ultimately what, this is what Paul wanted to give to these people. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Get that? He's unoriginal. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And then he said to the followers, of his, his disciples around him, he says, this is my body, which is for you. So take it, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, and it's in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. Why? For you, for me, the Lord's death until he comes back. So whoever therefore eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, is actually guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. So this is for you and for me. Let a person examine himself then, and then eat of the bread and then drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body actually eats and drinks judgment and condemnation on himself. And so here's a chance. Uh, as, as I pray, uh, what I'm praying for is that you and I would, would recognize that Jesus has done something for us. And as we take the, the bread, we take the, the juice, the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus, and we take the bread and we'll, we'll dip it into the juice. And for those of you, if you, if you feel like you need a gluten-free option, we actually have that also. We don't want to get all the hindrances out of the way uh, for celebrating the good news of Jesus. As we take a bread and dip it in the blood, we, we, we're proclaiming that Jesus died not just on accident, but for us. That the body and the blood of Jesus were broken and poured out for us. And the enemy wants you to think about your sin. The enemy wants you to think about what's wrong. The enemy wants you to think about what's broken in your life. And we declare the good news over that, that despite those things, Jesus died for me. 
So if that maybe doesn't apply to you, we want to take those words to heart. Uh, if there's some reflection that maybe you need to take, and maybe you, maybe you don't need, maybe you have the courage to not participate, that's cool. We love you. You're welcome to do either. We're going to declare the good news of Jesus either way. But we're going to pray, and my, my first prayer is that we would reflect and we would do so obediently. God, thank you so much for how good you are. Uh, thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much that you died with a purpose, and that purpose was to give us new life. We thank you that you did not stay dead, that we can celebrate your death, we can celebrate your broken body and your poured out blood, because ultimately you did not stay dead. Instead, you came back to show your power for us. We thank you for how merciful you are, uh, even though we don't deserve it. And so we want to celebrate that in this time. And uh, if our heart's not right, God, would you just give us the courage to maybe pass, uh, to maybe just pass up an opportunity? But, but God, if we're willing, would you begin to illustrate for us this good news? Um, could we participate in it? And could we celebrate the body and the blood that you've broken and poured out for us? God, if maybe we're, uh, we're afraid to do it, we're afraid to kind of take that step of faith, would you uh, begin to inspire us and give us the courage? If there's sin in our lives, if there's brokenness in our hearts, then uh, would you begin to, to speak a louder and better word uh, that your blood covers all those sins, that your blood offers new life? And so we want to celebrate that faithfully. We want to worship you rightly. In your name we ask it. Amen.